Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. It's good to see you all today. Glad that you're here with us for our last Sunday at the park. Um, before we dive in, I want to just mention one or two things. Um, first, if you're anything like me, you were uh, pretty disappointed this last week when news broke that masks are now being recommended indoors. And uh, I don't know about you, I was happy about the idea of never wearing a mask again in my life. And uh, the first thing I actually thought about was next Sunday when we're going to be gathered in our new sanctuary together for the first time worshiping as a family, and to picture all of us wearing these dumb masks just wasn't the picture that I had. And um, if you've been with us for the last year and a half or whatever it's been, you know that we've done our best to cooperate with uh, those who are in different levels of government leadership over us, no matter who was in office. Um, And we've done our best to take the virus seriously because we take loving our neighbors seriously. And uh, so obviously we'd much rather not wear the masks, but when you kind of weigh the risks versus the benefits, it's a pretty small sacrifice to make to help things from uh, getting even worse. And so um, just real quickly for me, this last week, this whole thing got a little bit more real when a pastor friend of mine uh, was hospitalized with COVID. And um, one of God's great graces for me throughout 2020 was the opportunity to be part of a pastoral flourishing cohort through Western Seminary. So it was a group of seven of us pastors from the Northwest that got together every couple months throughout the year to encourage one another and to navigate what turned out for all of us to be by far the most challenging year of ministry that any of us had ever had. And um, it was an incredible blessing to have guys to lean on and really a brotherhood formed amongst us. Well, one of the guys uh, in that cohort, pastor of a church in Lake Oswego near Portland, a church called Meadow Springs Community Church. His name is Jerry Barris. And a couple weeks ago, I got a text uh, saying that both Jerry and his wife, Brenda, had come down with severe cases of COVID. And they're uh, in their early 60s. And so the thing about Jerry is that several years ago, uh, his wife, Brenda, had a, a major stroke. And it left her in a place where she basically needs full-time care and uh, can't communicate, can't move on her own. And for somebody like her with major medical issues, COVID, uh, as we all know, is especially scary. And so um, all of last week, I kept getting uh, text updates, um, and the news was that both Jerry and Brenda were were not doing well and low oxygen levels and in bad shape. And then finally on Friday night, I got a text saying that Jerry had died from COVID. And um, what's crazy is the last time I talked to Jerry, he had shared with our group that um, he had discerned that his time in ministry was complete and that God was freeing him up to retire so that he could be a full-time caretaker um, for his wife. And so now you have a uh, church without a pastor, 
a wife without a husband, kids and grandkids without a dad and a grandpa. And it's just so devastating. And so I would say, if you would, keep the Barris family, Meadow Springs Church, in your prayers. And I know that others of you have had similar experiences, that you've lost people close to you due to COVID. And um, what it does is just continually remind us um, that this thing is real. And so just like you, I hope that this mask recommendation is short-lived. I hope that more people will take this thing seriously. I hope more people will get vaccinated so we can kill this Delta variant and not have to work our way through the rest of the Greek alphabet. Like, um, so we are. We're going to play it safe on Sundays for the time being. And I don't know about you, even if we're masked up, I'm just excited that we have a place to worship together and to be the family of God. And I can't wait to see you all there next Sunday. So um, that's the update on that. If we're in the book of Ephesians, uh, Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. And uh, the book of Ephesians is really a letter about the church to the church. And it's, I would say, one of the most significant portions of Scripture we have when it comes to conveying the heart of God for what the church is and what the church is for. And so in the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul is laying out the good news of God, or what we would call the gospel of Jesus. And I would summarize that gospel like this, that in Jesus Christ, that God himself has broken into human history. And he's joined himself to humanity, suffered and died for our sin, victoriously risen from the dead, and ascended into heaven, inaugurating God's kingdom reign on earth and launching a cosmic revolution to make all things new, including us. And when we hear and believe this gospel, repenting of our sin and trusting in the person, of work, person and work of Christ, God's restorative power comes upon us. And we're adopted by the Father, united with Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit to joyfully participate in the divine and to join Christ in his mission of the reconciliation of all things for the glory of God and the joy of the world. This is the gospel of Jesus, to which Paul himself is a witness and, and an apostle. And this is good news indeed. As we've said, the gospel ought to sound like good news. And it's a big gospel, maybe bigger than the gospel that many of us were once familiar with, that's just about me and Jesus, my personal sin and salvation. This gospel includes all of that, but it's actually about the whole world being made new. And so that's what Paul's doing in the first half of his letter to the church in Ephesus. And then, starting in chapter 4, there's a pivot. He shifts to the question of how then does this gospel form a community of people? What does it look like when a community of people that we call the church begins to live radically different in light of this good news? And the idea is that this gospel, if it's true, it can't just be contained to the part of our life that we call religion or faith or spirituality, but this is a gospel that touches everything, and it changes everything it touches. 
And so the question is, how does the good news that God is remaking the world through Christ, how does that touch the everyday parts of our lives? Things like marriage and parenting and work and sex and money and relationships and integrity and emotions and all the stuff that makes up our human experience. And so Paul starts off this letter by focusing, or starts off this section of the letter, starting in verse 4, by focusing on the church. What is the church, and what is the church for? Now, I think we're at a really interesting moment in time to be asking a question like this. Because I think these are questions that a lot of people in our world have been asking, at least at a subconscious level, over the last year and a half. In uh, Barna's 2020 State of the Church report, they found that during the COVID pandemic, one-third of practicing Christians stopped attending church altogether. Meaning, in person or online, one-third of previous churchgoers completely checked out. And uh, it's a high number, but it's probably not shocking because we all know people like that. That they realize that for one reason or other, they kind of liked their life better without being involved in a church or going to church services every week. Or for whatever reason, they just couldn't make it work. And then now, as the world is kind of trying to reopen, we're all figuring out what, what we want to add and what we want to keep away as we navigate this next season of life. And so it's been a really interesting time to be the church. Every pastor that I know uh, would say that during 2020, 2021, a whole bunch of people have left their church, and then most of us would say a whole bunch of new people have joined our churches as well. That's true for most of the churches in Bend. We all kind of just shuffled the sheep around a little bit. Um, But unfortunately, even two, three churches in Bend didn't make it through the pandemic. And so it's a moment where we begin to ask the question, what is the church and what is the church for? What is this thing? Where does it fit into my life or where do I fit into its life? And so that's the question we're going to address this morning according to the book of Ephesians. Now, Paul uses several metaphors throughout this letter to describe the church, but the main one he uses is that the church is the body of Christ. What is the church? The church is the body of Christ. He first uses this phrase in Ephesians 1.22 where he says, And God placed all things under Christ and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. Christ is the head and the church is his body. Paul uses the word body 12 times in this short letter, four of which are in today's passage. Verse 4, there is one body and one spirit. Verse 12, so that the body of Christ may be built up. Verse 15, we will grow to become the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. And verse 16, from him, the whole body joined and held together. This is the picture that Paul is painting that he desperately wants his readers to pick up on. When we think of the church, he wants us to think of Christ's body. Now, it's a familiar metaphor to many of us, but it's a huge claim to make, to claim that the church is the body of Jesus. 
And in a time where many in our world are questioning the value of church, we see that for Paul, he has a ridiculously high view of the church. That Jesus is the head, the church is the body. And a head, if you just think about biologically, physically, a head can't really function without a body. And a body can't function without a head. They're connected to one another, dependent on one another, related to one another at multiple levels. There's a French film called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. And it's based on the true story of Jean-Dominique Bauby, who was the editor-in-chief of a French fashion magazine called Elle. And um, the story goes that Jean-Dominique has this stroke and he ends up with what's called locked-in syndrome. Locked-in syndrome. And basically, it means that his mind still works, but his body doesn't. And so he can still see, he can still hear, and he can still think, but he can't talk and he can't move any part of his body. And so the film tells this story that he's this creative genius full of ideas and insights. He has this amazing mind and he's gifted with words, but he can't get any of it out of his head because his body doesn't work. And eventually, what's crazy, he figures out a way of communicating by learning to blink his eyes. And he has somebody that can transcribe for him letter by letter, and he ends up writing an entire book just by blinking his eyes. Now, it's a pretty amazing story, and it reminds us just how important a body is. That you can have a brilliant mind, and you can have a genuine heart, but without a body, without a way to communicate, without a way to express your mind and your heart, then what good is it? So the purpose of a body, church, the purpose of a body is to express the heart and the mind of the person. It's to be the physical manifestation of the inner being. The body makes visible that which is visible, makes hearable that which is unhearable, makes knowable that which is unknowable. Without a body, the heart and mind have no way of being known. So now you start to get the weight of this claim that Paul makes with this metaphor, that the church is the body of Jesus Christ. He is the head his heart, his mind, his spirit live within us, but we are his body. We are the way that he has chosen to make his heart and his mind known to the world. We take his thoughts, his vision, his dream, and we put it into action. Jesus identifies the church as part of, of who he is. This week we celebrated with the Swigart family as Jackie gave birth once again to another family's child. And it's not like a sketchy, scandalous thing. They planned to do it that way. Surrogacy. And it's an amazing display of the heart of Jesus 
when someone like Jackie is able to say, I'm going to use my body to make manifest the dream of another family. I'm going to give them this gift, taking their dreams and making them a reality. And my body will become theirs. Beautiful display of the gospel. And so this idea that we are the body of Christ, it reminds us that Jesus isn't some distant, far-off, unknowable, mythical or historical or magical figure, but that somehow Jesus is deeply present and connected with his people here on earth. In fact, do you remember when Paul, before he met Christ, was walking along the road to Damascus, and Jesus, the post-Easter Jesus, shows up to him and says, Paul, Paul, or Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Realistically, Saul was persecuting Christians. But Jesus didn't say, why are you persecuting the church? He said, why are you persecuting me? Jesus makes no distinction between himself and his body. Jesus has put his heart and his mind into his body, which is the church. And so that is who we are. So when we get to verse one of chapter four, and Paul commands the church to live a life worthy of the calling we have received, this is what he's talking about. Our calling is to be the body of Christ to be the physical representation of Jesus in the world, to be the people that collectively express and put into action the heart and the mind of Christ in the world and to join him on his mission of restoring all things back to right relationship with himself. This is the life, the calling, the vocation of the church to be the presence of Jesus to one another and to the world. Now, if you keep thinking about this metaphor as a body, you think about the reality that a body has various functions and various parts that are all interconnected and interrelated to one another. And basically, when all of our bodily parts are connected in a right and, a, and in a functional way, we call that health. We call that physical health. But when those relationships between various parts of our body get diseased or cut off or, <clears throat> or in need of repair, we call that sickness, unhealth. And so Paul takes this metaphor further and says that the vision is not that just that we would be a body, but that we would be a healthy body that we would be a functioning body. We would be a body that's in right relationship to one another. And he uses really these two words to describe what a healthy body would look like. The first is the idea of unity, that a healthy body is a unified body. A body is made up of a whole bunch of different parts. And each part is distinct, and each part is valuable, and each part is vital for the health of the whole. And so I'm convinced that a lot of times churches talk about unity or we use the word community to describe the relationships that we have with one another. That is one of our core values and practices at Antioch, that we want to live life in community, sharing life as a family. 
But I think the picture that most of us have when we talk about unity or community within the church is really more about affinity than it's about community. When we think about affinity, when we talk about community, but we picture affinity, we're, we're thinking, I want to be friends with people like me. I want to share life with like-minded people. I want to share life with people that I would choose, people that are easy to get along with. But you'll remember from the last two weeks, the whole context of Ephesians is the Jews and the Gentiles becoming one body. Two people from totally different stories, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different cultures becoming one. People who would never get along in the wild, becoming brothers and sisters in the family of God. And so we say on a regular basis that we won't have true community at Antioch until there's someone there who you wish wasn't. Until that point, we're just a clique. We're just an affinity group. It doesn't require a miracle for me to hang out with a bunch of people just like me. But for us to become the countercultural united body of Christ, for us to <clears throat> come from different places, different worldviews, different backgrounds, wherever it is that we're coming from and being formed together into one body, that requires a bloody cross and an empty tomb a supernatural level of community that's only possible because of this gospel. If you think about it, this idea of unity is at the very core of who God is. That God himself is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three in one. There's otherness, but there is oneness. God is unified, and so to bear his image or to be his body in the world means that we have to be unified as well. And when we say unified, we don't just mean the absence of conflict, like we know which tough subjects to avoid so that we don't offend anybody. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the presence of a spiritual oneness that has the power to unite people who were once enemies and strangers. This other metaphor that Paul uses is that we're the family of God. And we all know from experience that we don't get to choose our family, do we? In fact, if most of us had the choice, we would probably choose a little bit differently. But the beauty of family is that they're chosen for us. And in a church, it's chosen for us as well. And so there's a call to be a healthy expression of the body of Christ, to be united. And this kind of unity, gospel unity, Holy Spirit unity, requires us to pursue this next mark of health, which is maturity. A mature expression of Christ's body. Paul's vision is that the church isn't stagnant that individuals aren't staying at the same place in the formation of their lives, but that each and every one of us is constantly being formed, being fathered, being shaped, being discipled by Jesus to become people who represent him faithfully in every way to the world. 
And so this is one of the reasons that the church exists, to promote a shared trajectory of maturity, to help us become the people that God has created and redeemed us to be. That the church would be the primary classroom in which Jesus is discipling us. And I hope you're understanding that when I say the church, I don't just mean showing up for services on Sundays. I mean this community, this family, this is the place, these are the people. And this is what God has chosen to use as a classroom of discipleship. And so Jesus, the head, the church, his body, Jesus actively at work forming his image and likeness in his people, calling us to right and restored relationships with one another and equipping us to bear his image to the world. And the strategy that he has for this in verse 12 is that Christ equips people for the works of service so that his body may be built up. And so here's where we start to understand if the church is the body of Christ, that's who we are. Well, what's the church for? The church is for this mission, called to this vocation of joining Christ in his work on earth. And the idea is that just as a body is made up of a bunch of different parts, so is the church. Each part has a specific gift or calling, a specific set of abilities or experiences or expertise, a certain hardwiring or level of interest or whatever it is, various parts. As Jesus ascends into heaven and pours out his spirit upon his church, he calls people who have particular supernatural gifts, strengths, and abilities to continue his work on earth for the sake of building one another up and bearing his image in the world. This vision of the ascended Christ giving gifts to the church that the church will be built up and reach Christ-like maturity. Each one of us gifted by Christ to be part of what he's up to in the world. So that's what the church is and what the church is for. Which makes me start to wonder, start to dream, start to imagine what would happen if an entire community of people had their identity rooted in Jesus and had their unique gifts affirmed? What would happen if a community of people were devoted to becoming a healthy, unified, mature expression of Christ's body in the place where he had put them? What would happen is that they would become a compelling preview of God's coming kingdom that the world is longing and desperate to see. One writer puts it this way. Throughout his ministry, Jesus showed what the kingdom of God was all about by loving outcasts, befriending the oppressed, healing the sick, cleansing the lepers, caring for the poor, driving out demons, forgiving sins, and so forth. 
If you peel back his miracles, the common denominator underneath them all is that he was alleviating human suffering and showing what the future kingdom of God looks like. When Jesus did his miracles, he says, he was indicating that he was reversing the effects of the curse. In Jesus' ministry, a bit of the future had penetrated the present. Jesus embodied the future kingdom of God where human suffering will be eradicated and there will be peace, justice, freedom, and joy. The church, he goes on, which is Christ's body in the world, carries on this ministry. It stands on the earth as a sign of the coming kingdom. The church lives and acts in the reality that Jesus Christ is Lord of the world today. It lives in the presence of the future, in the already but not yet of the kingdom of God. For this reason, the church is commissioned to proclaim and embody the kingdom now, to bring a bit of the new creation into the old, to bring a piece of heaven into the earth, demonstrating to the world what it will look like when God is calling the shots in the life of the church. God's future has already begun. What a beautiful vision of what it means and what it looks like to be the body of Christ. For his dreams, his visions, his thoughts, his heart to be expressed and made manifest through this community called the church. And central to this vision in verse 16 is that each as each part does its work. So the work of the church isn't just the paid professionals like me. It's not just our pastoral staff or our elders or our worship leaders or the ones that take the stage. He's saying, no, the work of the church is the work of the people, that we collectively are the body of Christ and each part has work to do. It takes all of us to bear the image of Christ in the world. I'm not one of the pastors that typically tells a lot of war stories. A lot of guys seem to like that kind of thing. Most of my examples are from um, food or movies, you may have noticed. But there's an amazing story. If, well, here's a movie. If you've ever seen The uh, Bridge on the River Kauai, or the more recent version of it, To End All Wars, with Kiefer Sutherland, then you know the story of Ernest Gordon, the British Army, Army officer who was captured by the Japanese during World War II. And just give me a moment, because I want to share this story with you, because I don't know that I've come across a story that captures my imagination for what the church is and could be better than this. Philip Yancey tells the story in, in his book, Rumors of Another World. And so Ernest Gordon, 24 years old, was captured by the Japanese and sent to work on the Burma-Siam Railway. It was a line that the Japanese were constructing through the dense Thai jungle for possible use in the invasion of India. And for labor, they conscripted prisoners of war that they had captured from occupied countries in Asia and from the British army itself. 
So against international law, the Japanese forced even officers to work in manual labor. And each day, Ernest Gordon would join a detail of thousands of prisoners who hacked their way through the jungle and built up a track bed through the low-lying swampland. Yancey writes, The scene was straight out of Dante. Naked except for loincloths, the men worked under a broiling sun in 120-degree heat. Their bodies stung by insects, their bare feet cut and bruised by sharp stones. Death was commonplace. If a prisoner appeared to be lagging, a Japanese guard would beat him to death, bayonet him, or decapitate him in full view of the other prisoners. Many more men simply dropped dead from exhaustion, malnutrition, and disease. Under these severe conditions, with such inadequate care for prisoners, 80,000 men ultimately died building the railway, 393 fatalities for every mile of track. So in his book, To End All Wars, Ernest Gordon tells the story. Something was astir in the prison camp, something that Gordon calls the miracle on the river Kauai. It says, for the most part of the war, the prison camp had been a laboratory of survival of the fittest. Every man for himself. In the food line, prisoners fought over a few scraps of vegetables or grains floating in the greasy broth. Officers refused to share any of their special rations. Theft was common in the barracks. Men lived like animals, and hate was the main motivation to stay alive. Recently, though, a change had come. One event in particular shook the prisoners. Japanese guards carefully counted the tools at the end of a day's work, and one day the guard shouted that a shovel was missing. He walked up and down the ranks, demanding to know who had stolen it. When no one confessed, he screamed, all die, all die, and raised his rifle to fire at the first man in the line. At that instant, one of the prisoners stepped forward, stood at attention and said, it was me, I did it. The guard fell on him in a fury, kicking and beating the prisoner, who despite the blows still managed to stand at attention. Enraged, the guard lifted his weapon high in the air and brought down the rifle butt on the soldier's skull. The man sank into the heap of the ground, but the guard continued, continually kicking his motionless body. Excuse me. When the assault finally stopped, the other prisoners picked up their comrade's corpse and marched back to the camp. That evening, when the tools were inventoried again, the work crew discovered a mistake had been made. No shovel was missing. One of the prisoners recalled the verse, greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Gordon writes, the attitudes in the camp began to shift. Prisoners started treating the dying with respect, organizing proper funerals and burials, marking each man's grave with a cross. With no prompting, prisoners began looking out for each other rather than themselves. Thefts grew increasingly rare. Some of the men, knowing that Gordon had previously studied philosophy, asked him to lead a discussion group on ethics. The conversation kept circling around the issue of how to prepare for death, the most urgent question of the camp. 
Seeking answers, Gordon returned to fragments of faith recalled from his childhood. He had thought little about God for years, but as he would later put it, faith thrives when there is no hope but God. By default, Gordon became the unofficial camp chaplain. Prisoners built a tiny church, and each evening they gathered to say prayers for those with the greatest needs. Now listen to what happens next. The informal discussion group proved so popular that a jungle university began to form. Whoever had expertise in a certain field would teach a course to other students. The university soon offered courses in history, philosophy, economics, mathematics, natural sciences, at least nine languages, including Latin, Greek, Russian, and Sanskrit. Professors wrote their own textbooks as they went along on whatever scraps of paper they could find. Prisoners with artistic talents salvaged bits of charcoal from cooking fires, pounded rocks to make their own paints, and managed to produce enough artwork to mount an exhibition. Two botanists oversaw a garden specializing in medicinal plants. A few prisoners had smuggled in stringed instruments, and other musicians carved woodwinds out of bamboo, and before long an orchestra had formed. One man blessed with a photographic memory could write out the complete scores of symphonies from composers like Beethoven and Schubert, and soon the camp was staging orchestra concerts, ballets, and musical theater performances. Gordon's book tells the transformation of individual men in the camp, a transformation that was so complete that when liberation finally came, the prisoners treated their sadistic guards with kindness and not revenge. Ernest Gordon would go on to become a Presbyterian minister and uh, eventually became the dean of chapel at Princeton Seminary, where he died in early 2002, just before the movie about his life was complete. But he said that two worlds lived side by side in the jungles of Thailand in the early 1940s. The miracle on the River Kauai was no less than the creation of an alternate community, a tiny settlement of the kingdom of God taking root in the least likely soil, a spiritual fellowship that somehow proved more substantial and more real than the world of death and despair all around. What a story. And yes, a story that celebrates the human spirit, but even Gordon himself would say it's way more than that. It's a story that celebrates the spirit of Jesus. The cross-formed, self-sacrificing, neighbor-loving spirit of Jesus that he has given to his body. And I wonder if something like this is exactly what Jesus had in mind when he preached about this thing called the kingdom of God. That in this violent, disordered world, an alternate community would take root. And that in this world, there would be a people 
that live as citizens of another world. Not just spreading rumors or going through the motions, but planting settlements in advance of the coming reign of Christ. This is what it looks like when each part does its job. And I could turn this into a really hefty volunteer drive. And it includes that. Each of us serving the congregation in whatever ways we're able to. But I hope you see it's bigger than that as well. That yes, we're seeking unity, but we're also seeking to be made into the people of God who are bearing his image in the world, not just one day a week, but seven days a week. In this congregation today, we have people from all different sectors of society, from the worlds of science and technology, business, education, healthcare, the arts and entertainment, government, family, social services, and so on. People that tomorrow morning will scatter across central Oregon to play our part in the announcement of this new king and this new kingdom. And what's so important for us to understand is that the church is the only institution on the face of the earth that regularly gathers together members from all sectors of society for the sake of pursuing the common good. That we are an eclectic bunch of people who have been called out out of the world into Christ, into the family of God, gifted by the Holy Spirit to love one another and to bear the image of Jesus wherever it is we find ourselves. And so this marks a moment of transition for our family, for this expression of Christ's body that we call Antioch. Next week, we enter a new season in our worshiping life together. And I can't wait. But my invitation to you is, not to, is that you would not audit the mission. But that you would give yourself to it. We belong to one another. We've been chosen and called and sent by Christ to be united to grow in maturity, and to pursue this vocation of being his body in the world. And it takes all of us. And the incredible thing about it is that Jesus himself is the one who's given his very life. That his body was broken, his blood was poured out so that we could be made whole one with him and one with another. So Pastor Sean will come and lead us to the table this morning. Father God, we are so grateful that you have entrusted us with this awesome privilege and responsibility of bearing the image of your son in the world. And I look at my own life and I feel so incredibly unworthy. And I look at this church 
and feel like, how could you use a group like us to display a gospel this good? But the truth is, it's not dependent upon us, our good works, our good efforts. But you have given us everything we need in Christ, all the spiritual blessings, and ultimately you have given us your spirit, the spirit of Jesus that now lives in us. And so we pray that your spirit would fill us, empower us, lead us to repentance and faith that you would use this church as a classroom to form the heart and the mind and the life of Jesus in each of us more fully for your glory and the joy of the world.